This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today's episode is with Jamie Cato. Jamie Cato is the creative catalyst behind the global philosophy, music, and film project One Giant Leap, and he's a founding member of the dance music supergroup called Faithless. With Sounds True, Jamie Cato, along with Alex Forrester, has released the album Internal, Music for Dissolving, Soothing Music, expressing both the swirling seas and the serenity that coexist within us. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jamie and I spoke about tuning into our woundedness as a gateway to our creative gifts. We also talked about how to turn our shadow material into rocket fuel in our life. We talked about Jamie Cato's creativity manifesto and what it means to take off the masks that we wear every day. And finally, we heard excerpts from three different tracks from Jamie Cato and Alex Forster's new album, Internal, Music for Dissolving. Here's my conversation with Jamie Cato. Jamie, in addition to being a musician and a filmmaker and a dad, you call yourself a creative catalyst, helping people get what's on the inside to the outside. And I'm curious, in your work with people as a creative catalyst, what do you see as the major obstacle that people face in expressing their creativity and bringing their creativity out? That's a good question. Um, the thing, the first thing that comes to mind is the huge amount of limiting beliefs me and others have in our head that we were given by parents and carers and teachers. You're not good. You're not good at this. You're not creative. Um, when we're little and we're getting all this feedback from people who are very unenlightened and messed up and used to just dumping their stuff on others, including children. We don't have the uh, intelligence or the screen and the maturity to know that that's just their belief. When you're a kid, you actually believe it's true, particularly when it comes from an angry mom or dad. So um, these huge limiting beliefs we all carry about what we're good at or what are our possibilities or um, which part of ourselves are allowed to be seen, you know, that we're so approval addicted by our parents, you know, the way we're taught how to use our fleshy spacesuit, the way we're taught to use our hands and feet and is by being given lots of approval when we get it right and having less approval when we get it wrong. And whenever you give something and then take it away and give something and take it away, that creates an addict. So we become approval addiction. Addicts and and Facebook is the great proof of that. You know, you check to see how many didn't, how many likes did I get, how many lovely approval moments did I get today. Uh, that's our fix. 
Um, the problem with that is as we're growing up, whenever a parent or a carer goes, stop that, that's disgusting. You go, oh, slice, better not let anyone see that again. Suppress forever. Do that. Cut. Oh, be pretty for mummy. Cut. Every single time we were given really negative feedback, we edited off that bit because it didn't get approval. It got the opposite. And we unconsciously, cripply edited, violently edited ourselves down to these crippled brochures of ourselves, of just the good bits or the bits we perceive would get us through the door, get us love, get us approval. And in, in the process, we've lopped off huge lumps of our creativity, huge lumps of our outrageousness, the part of us that could be loud and ebullient and fabulous. Many, many people have been told to squash that. Many people have thought, oh, that, well, that's arrogant, that's this, that's ego, that's that. And um, so, yeah, the biggest obstacle is that we've squashed ourselves down to a tiny little brochure version of, of our huge, unapologetic, powerful, juicy self. So how does somebody break an approval addiction? They say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Jamie. I have that. I, I want people to think highly of me. And that's an obstacle. I get it. How do I change it? By playing with the characters that you thought were forbidden in controlled circumstances. We've all suppressed different characters. We've all suppressed different sides of ourselves. And if you just leave them suppressed forever, then they grow fangs and moss and start leaping out in sabotage ways in our lives. So it's really important to, to find those characters, find those characteristics and play with them um, under controlled circumstances, like the Tibetans say, you know, feeding meat to the demons. Um, to find, luckily, if you're an artist, you've got the great characters of literature all come out of those um, suppressed sides or lyrics or music or playing disgusting games with children. Kids are the, a great place to play shadow games with when they're in on it. They love, there's a reason kids love the author Roald Dahl so much because it's full of sort of snot and poo and disgusting behavior. And kids love that when they're in on it. So what we do a lot on the workshops is, is play with all the things we condemn and judge and think are forbidden and let them out by bit by bit, oxygenate them, give them more and more permission and find their hilarious side rather than their traumatic side. And, and the more you find out how hilarious your outrageousness is, uh, the more it's like blood rushing back into a muscle and, and you re-inherit a huge amount of creative energy. Now, I know you recently started a Facebook group called Sanctuary for Terror, and I thought this was interesting. I mean, for a lot of us, I think our terror is something that we're not all of that interested in claiming and admitting how terrified we are. And yet probably a lot sure. of people would say that when it comes to my creative dreams, I do feel terrified, terrified that I won't realize them to be honest. So talk a little bit about why create a sanctuary for terror. Well, when I'm going into a, a huge terror meltdown, um, I really isolate myself and, 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 and feel like there's no one that can reach me. There's no one going to be there for me. And I have one or two people in my life that, that, I, that I do feel supported by. But if I can't get them on the phone or they're in a different time zone, then I just... I'm going to be suffering and sweating and puking till dawn sometimes. It's, it's, and I thought to myself, God, wouldn't it be great if there was a place like we have in England, a thing called the Samaritans, which is a phone number you can ring and there'll always be someone on the end of the line. But, you know, I, I don't necessarily want that. But wouldn't it be great if there was a place where all of us who are terrified, you know, anytime, night or day, you could come on and just say, hey, I'm melting down. Is anyone there? And and it's amazing what's happened on this Facebook group. So many different people have come on and they're lonely or they're, they're freaking out or they're 
they've just had a fight with their, you know, with their husband or something's just happened to one of their kids, you know, heavy stuff and they're feeling totally isolated or terrified and there's suddenly someone pops up from Australia and says, oh God, I feel like that too, thank God you're there or someone from Lisbon in Portugal or someone in Nevada. Suddenly there's this cross-international conversation going on where everyone's sharing the same terrors and the same support and it's incredible when you take away the isolation from the terror, it halves it completely um, and suddenly conversations are happening and an incredible amount of support and love and nourishment is, is getting transmitted through this Facebook group. It was, you know, I, I really did it on a whim in the middle of the night once when I was totally sort of lost and I didn't think, because I have a, now I've reached my limit of 5,000 friends or whatever, um, I, you don't even think you know, when you press create that of course it goes on people's news feeds and suddenly it's like 10, 20, 30, 40, 200, 300 members all, everyone suddenly wanted it I always think every single creative idea I've had I'm always the best ones are the ones where I'm the first customer like One Giant Leap I wanted a film or an, an album which really showed how the great the, the world music players and singers of the world are and really showcased how incredible they are I wanted it for me I wasn't doing it as a thing for the world. I wanted it for myself. And it's the same with Sanctuary for Terror. I wanted it for me. And it's always those things we want for ourselves that suddenly everyone else relates to and become the most successful. And I'm curious, in your own process as an artist, what do you see as the relationship between terror and creating? Oh, I don't know. Um, A lot of my creations have come out of looking for medicine or looking for peace or looking for a lifeline um, out of my isolation and alienation. Uh, I think the wonderful thing about planet Earth is that because we come out of the oneness with, um, you know, we come out of the one into duality. It means we can have experience on planet Earth. You can't do that when there's only one thing. But when there's me and you, we can have a conversation. When there's me and pizza, when there's me and music, when there's me and sex, when there's me and countryside, I can have an experience. You always need to have duality, two things for an experience. But that's a great thing about planet Earth is you come here and have experience and you have to be in duality to do it. You have to pretend and take a pill that makes you think you're an individual. But the problem with that admission fee, the problem with the price of coming to Earth, which is coming as an individual, is you also have to deal with alienation and loneliness and competitiveness and isolation and, and all the challenging things that come with being an individual. And and I guess a lot of my art, a lot of the things I've made, whether it be workshops or films, it's all, it's come from a way to reach out and, and be, feel connected and intimate with the things around me. You know, um, there was a part of one giant leap where we were showing all the different religions all saying the same thing. That was really the first ever idea I had for one giant leap was surely if we put a rabbi next to a priest, next to a Buddhist monk, next to an imam, and we asked them all about humility or generosity, they'd all pretty much say the same thing. Wouldn't it be great to put them all in a row? And, and that's really my way of wanting to be intimate with the world around me and say, Hey, isn't this obvious to you? It's obvious to me. Um, and yeah, art for me is a way of creating intimacy with the people around me and the world around me, a way to feel connected and for us to all connect. And tell us a little bit, Jamie, about the new album that you've created along with Alex Forster, Internal Music for Dissolving. What was the genesis of that effort? Mm, Thank you for asking me that. Um, I believe that all the big challenges and difficulty and, and 
pain and strife I feel in my life, I normally think, oh, it's about worrying about money or it's about a problem with my girlfriend or my ex-wife. But really, if you do a Vipassana meditation or, or many other practices, uh, another way of looking at it is you could just disconnect it from all those stories about girlfriends and money or whatever and just feel it as a physical sensation in the body. And the most effective way I have found to move energy into to and to heal really is to remove myself from all the mental constructs and stories and characters that are attached to those feelings and just come back to the physical sensation of it. Oh, what's going on? Oh, it's a, it's a tightness in my solar plexus. It's an emptiness in my belly. It's a cold waterfall in my heart. It's something physical. And I got really interested in the work of this Taoist teacher called Bruce Francis, who's the great um, Taoist Qigong Tai Chi teacher of our age, probably, who's been taught by all the great masters and holds the lineage and all that jazz. Um, and the Taoists have this funky thing called dissolving, where you breathe into the place in your body where it feels blocked, and you just breathe into it, gently oxygenate it, and you say the words ice to water, water to steam, and you literally begin to dissolve those blocks like a boiled sweet or a piece of ice. Um, and some tears are hard to cry. You know, some places are hard to feel. They're like bubbles that are caught between the ribs. It's like not always easy to really locate the emotion or the feeling or the essence or the block. It's, it, it takes some time. And I find that music is a really great catalyst for feeling more, for magnifying, for leading me there. And so we began to make music for the dissolving, music to help us find the sadness, the sorrow, the grief, help us locate the the triggers, locate those difficult-to-find bubbles of emotion that I wanted to dissolve. And it began like that. Um, and, yeah, that, that was the music for the dissolving album. That's how it, it came into being. And I'd love to play for our listeners a track from Internal music for dissolving what would you suggest well if you want if your listeners don't mind sinking into um a deeper wound if they want to contact one of the deeper wounds which actually is a gift for finding our our wounds i believe are are signposts to what is our great gift for the world i feel we get wounded it's like we're getting shoved down into the dark mines and if we come up we end up with a jewel in our hand which we share with everybody else like Chiron, the wounded healer. And one of the great tracks for that is, is on the album is called No Trace. Let's listen.
And that's No Trace from Jamie Cato and Alex Forster's new album, Internal, Music for Dissolving. Jamie, you mentioned about how listening to music like this, in your own experience, one could tune to a feeling of woundedness and that it could become a gateway, if you will, a gateway for our gifts. And I'm curious to know more how you work with people in the workshops that you teach to help people have that experience. I mean, I could imagine someone listening who says, you know, my wounds feel like wounds. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Um, Really, the truth of something is malleable, is changeable. Nothing is how we choose to look at it, how we choose to frame something is what the truth of it is for us. I always tell this story about how when I first split up with my ex-wife, I was having this full-on dark night of the soul, and I was like, oh, this stuff, she was, she was already screwing some other guy, he had his socks in my drawer, uh, the kids loved him, total nightmare. Um, and I was wandering around, I left Spain where we were living, and it's like, where am I going to live, and how am I going to see the kids, how am I going to afford this? And I was on the London Underground listening to my iPod with... Uh, Peter Gabriel's Passion album playing this incredibly sad bit of film music and and the more it was playing the more I was looking around and every face seemed lonelier than the last and all the plight and all the things, all the challenges were squashing me and, and that was totally true for me. Everything that was happening to me, I was a victim to it, I was under it and that was totally true. Luckily for me, because I always keep my iPod on a shuffle the next thing that came on was the clash of this jubilant bit of rock and roll music playing London's Calling. And suddenly I was like, on my feet, I was like, who is this hero? Who is this maverick? Look at all these challenges he's facing. He's, he's incredible. And like the music suddenly lifted me and suddenly that became true. And it made me realize that the, that the truth of how something is, is by no means a fixed thing. So one can look at the wounding that's happening to me through one lens and go, oh, look at the heavy stuff that's happening to me. This is so unfair. I'm such a victim, which is the usual software we're born with. The usual cultural programming we have is Newtonian physics. I was standing still. This thing came along and hit me. I'm innocent. We're programmed to think you know, we're victims. But there's another way you can frame it. Like Gabrielle Roth says, it takes tremendous discipline to be a free spirit. Yes, you can look through the lens that says I'm a victim, but with a bit of discipline, you can click that lens and turn it into a lens that asks the question, hmm, how could this be benevolent? If I was living in a universe where everything was actually trying to do something loving for me, how is this an illumination? How is this potentially a gift? What am I maybe being trained in here if i was getting something from this what would it be if i had set this up as a special training simulation um what was i trying to show myself when you ask that question suddenly you become incredibly powerful instead of a victim and it's a choice you can look at it as it's happening to me or you can ask the questions that make us powerful um i choose to do the latter and try and train myself to ask the questions what is in this for me what am i getting from this what is the training here um And usually, another question is, how is this showing me me? Um, And when I ask those questions and a few others, suddenly I become really empowered. And and the the so-called wounding, the so-called challenging things that are happening to me suddenly become soul training instead of me being a victim. And it's all a question of how I choose to frame it, what lens I choose to look through. Am I looking through the victim lens or am I looking through the gift lens? 
Now, you said this question, how is this showing me me? What did you mean by that? I mean that usually the person that I'm judging and hating, it's usually my body's genius trying to show me me. Um, Like I was saying before, we've all edited ourselves down to this tiny, smaller shape of ourselves. And the human body is hardwired to self-mend. If you scratch your skin, it heals. If you break a bone, it mends. Your body is scanning yourself all day and night for viruses and bacteria and making its own drugs to flush them out. The human body is the most incredible self-healing, self-mending item in the whole universe that we know of. Well, I don't believe it's only just self-mending the physical. I think it's self-mending our emotions and our mental screw-ups as well. It's constantly mending that. And I think the machine, the, the process that the human species is using to heal our mental and emotional trauma is each other um and it's i believe the human race is seven billion mirrors seven billion challenging ways we can see ourselves and the very thing that you would judge in someone is difficult is different from what i would judge in someone the thing that your brain and judgmental system throws up for tammy to look at is relevant to you the thing that i I'm thrown up in my mind to judge and look at is something that's relevant to me. So when I start looking at my judgments um, as a way that the universe is trying to speak to me instead of, oh, it's that person, I'm pointing the finger over there. Can I give you a quick example? I'll try and tell this as quickly as possible. Sure. I was driving around. I was driving around in the car recently and I started having a memory of a teacher from 35 years ago at school. I haven't thought about this guy since. He was a teacher actually from another school who we were playing football against and this guy had major, major anger management issues and some kid on their team had been unsportsmanlike and kicked a ball away and this teacher laid into him like screaming at him, you Dink. This poor kid was like cowering on the ground while this big guy was sort of pointing at him and screaming his anger straight into him. Anyway, I had not thought about this for 35 years. I remember at the time thinking something's wrong here, but didn't hold on to it. 35 years later, I'm driving around in my car and I start thinking about this teacher. And then I start getting really angry about it. I think, God, someone should do something about that guy. I mean, this guy's probably dead now. No one's going to do anything. But I think, God, someone should have said something. I start getting really judgmental and like kind of heated about it. And then I think to myself, okay, let's just try out one of those things you tell everyone else to do on the workshops just once. How is this me? How am I showing myself me here? How is that guy just like me? Why is That's the genius way. Why would my mind throw that up? So I start thinking, and then I realized that the day before, I'd really shouted at one of my kids in a really irresponsible way and made her cry. And I hadn't actually made amends. I hadn't processed it with her and apologized properly. And it was the most brilliant reminder. It's like, thank God. My genius brain had thrown up that memory of that old teacher that I needed to judge so that I could lead myself on a path to reminding myself I needed to say sorry to Lola. And that is how genius the body's self-mending system is. All our judgments are actually part of our innate genius as a way to show us something we need to remember usually about ourselves. Now, Jamie, here's something I'm really curious about. I'm really curious to know why you want to teach workshops, helping other people realize their creativity, enter their wounds. You teach a workshop called Transforming Shadows into Rocket Fuel. I mean, I get why all of these principles and ideas are important to you as an artist and in the creation of your own art. But I'm curious why you've made this development in your life to be teaching other people these ideas in a workshop setting. Yeah, I, 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 you've got me. I don't know how it happened. I can't remember how when it happened. 
I was just gladly making films and music, had all my weekends free, and now all my weekends <laughs> Now my weekends are doing this. I have three weekends. I teach three weekends a month workshops and have one weekend with the kids. Um, and I, mean, I, I know why I've carried on doing it is because there's nothing more fun than being in the presence of transformation and in the presence of all that courage and bravery and, and being next to someone when you see them put something down or have an aha moment is a big turn on. Um, and to see somebody's explode into their creativity and go from limited to unlimited is amazing. Um, one of the workshops we do is called What About You? And that is my project Kickstarter workshop where you, you take your big gift for the world, the big project you've always wanted to do, which we're never really taught how to do our projects at school. Um, and I teach people how to take an idea out of your head into the world with a barcode. And um, to see people, we've now greenlit about 3,000 projects in two years and to see people now living the life they want to live instead of working for some guy they don't respect doing a job that doesn't inspire them to see them put that down and actually dare to leap into wow doing what i love all day maybe isn't just for other people maybe i could do that too and to get people to really ask that question of themselves what do you really want to do after breakfast if you had all your life expenses already paid what do you want to do after breakfast? And to come up with that answer and people start to live the dream that they could actually do what they love all day and not just be a slave to somebody else's boring job, it's just a, such a turn-on to be around. And it also gets me to really challenge myself and try out my own principles. Like all the payment on these workshops is voluntary. I believe I don't want to feed a model in the world that says money equals participation. So even though we do have a price for the workshop, there's a drop-down menu if that's too much that takes it down in increments of 20 and down to sort of five bucks or even zero. I mean, we'll pay your travel to get there if you want to be there and you can't be there. I believe that all payment should be voluntary and I want to live in a world where no one has to pay more than they want, more than what's comfortable, and yet there's still enough to go around. So the best way to build that world is to be that world. Um, so my all my business now is um, voluntary payment, and it's been a huge challenge for me, who is somebody who has three children and two ex-wives and you know tons of overheads. It's a great sort of ashram for me to be challenged and be keep letting go and letting go and letting go, and it also helps create the world I want to live in, which is where there's enough without anyone having to only be able to participate if they're wealthy. Now, Jamie, let's say someone's listening to this and they might not make it to one of your workshops, might not be in their geographic zone. As I'm speaking to you, you're in the UK, right? And and most of these mm-hmm. workshops are, are offered in, in the London area? Um, well, no, no, England, uh, Amsterdam, Berlin, just did a three weeks tour in Australia. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm in Thailand. I'm hoping to do uh, a tour in America once you know, that gathers enough momentum. It, I have to sort of, I haven't really focused on that so much because there's just so many other places nearby where where I'm asked to come. And uh-huh. oh, okay, so... Over, I'm sure it'll happen one day. Okay, so uh, but, continuing, yeah, so continuing on, yeah. So somebody may or may not make it to one of the actual workshops, but they have a big idea in them, a big idea. And they, they even kind of sort of know what it is, even though they might be afraid to fully admit it to themselves. But they have a big creative thing they have always wanted to do. What could you say here in this conversation that could at least point them in the right direction? You've mentioned a couple of things about going into those parts of ourselves that we've banished, but how can you help this person 
bring their big idea into reality? Apart from having a Skype call with me, yeah. I would say um, just on practical terms, just get on with it. Just get on with it. And all your limiting beliefs around, I can't do this, and this, they will all dissolve. Just start doing it. Decide how many hours a week can I schedule? How many hours a week can I dedicate to this? And even if it's only three hours a week, do three dedicatedly undisturbed hours towards it. There is so much you can do before you need someone else's money or a budget. You know, you, One Giant Leap was largely completely composed but before we got any money from anybody else. If you feel passionate about it, you can go all day and all night. You make your own vitamins. No one can stop you to come and have dinner. When, you're, when you don't want to do something, you can barely drag yourself to it and you overeat to give yourself the fuel to do it and you're exhausted and you do it late and it's not good work. But when you want to do something, when you feel passionate about it, that is its own fuel. So if you truly feel passionate about it, promise yourself that you can do three hours a week and don't don't over schedule don't say i'm going to now do yoga three hours a day for the rest don't don't say i'm going to do 20 hours a week it's better to, to schedule three and do six hours and feel great about yourself than to schedule schedule nine and do six hours and feel terrible about yourself be really honest about what you can actually schedule realistically and when you dedicate yourself to actually just step by step doing it it's incredible how the forces of life rush to your aid we have one of the concepts on the workshops called god's death waiters God's deaf waiters are like these invisible waiters that work for God that are all around the room. All around the room you're in, all around the room I'm in are these beautifully dressed waiters with towels over their arms and immaculate costumes. And they're waiting to bring us all incredible resources and luck and opportunities for our projects. But the thing is they're deaf. They can't hear our orders. They can't hear what we want by us saying it. They have to see our actions. And the moment you start taking action based on your excitement, suddenly all they see, ah, Tammy's doing that. She'll want one of these. Hey, let's send her one of those. The moment you start taking action, all kinds of magical things come along to support you. Unexpected gifts, unexpected bounty comes along. There's a great guy, um, uh, an extraterrestrial that lives in a spaceship above Sedona called Bashar. I don't know if you've come across him. He's just totally wonderful being. Oh, he's one of, my, one of my best friends. No, I'm just kidding. I've never heard of this guy. Uh, it's the best. Go to Bashar.org. It's the best, most concise wisdom available, I think. Um, and his thing is take action based on your excitement with no attachment to outcome. And if you do that, you're safe. You're off and running. And often your project, you thought it was this, it will turn into that. Because you've got to remember your project is a bit like your child. You're not exactly designing it. It, it is, has its own life. So you have to listen to it. We are not designing the tomato plant. We are putting the bamboo there so the tomato plant grows strong and has its best chance of of growing so it's very important to have no attachment to outcome we're doing it because we're passionate about it but i don't know whether my project's going to turn left turn right go up go down a great example is doing these workshops i've really found so much passion and joy and it supports my family and you know it's incredible but it really sprang from one giant leap it sprang from the screenings of having all these conversations after the after showing the movie we would do a Q&A and people would ask all these questions and because the subject of the movie is very much about the self and about awakening these conversations would be very deep and very tender and touching and, and it was never long enough. We always wanted to go on and on and on into the night and, and, and that's really where these workshops, the idea, the spark came from just carrying on these conversations about going deep 
And who knew that, that me wanting to go around the world and do world music was going to end up with me three weekends a month teaching people about exploding into their true selves and their creativity. You know, who knows where it's going to go? And if you're very happy to let it go where it wants to go and just be followed by your inspiration, you won't go far wrong. So, so really, the, 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 the short answer is that it's just get on with it. Get on with it. Find other people who are into it too and get on with it. Even if it's only a little bit, dedicate yourself to as much time as you can and it will grow. You, you, your attention and love is like sunshine. You shine it on things, it grows. And it's the same with your project. You give it your love and attention, it will grow. And in that spirit, let's listen to a song called Open the Floodgates. This yeah. is the first track on the album Internal, Music for Dissolving by Jamie Cato and Alex Worster.
song open the floodgates <laughs> gorgeous from the new record internal music for dissolving i'm talking with jamie cato and jamie you were part of a band for a long time called faithless and yeah. here we are you're talking to sounds true on our <laughs> program insights at the edge a program that in general is filled with quite a lot of faith and I'm curious how you relate to this idea of faith and faithlessness. Hmm. Faithless was called Faithless because it was one of the tracks was about a man who had lost his faith. Um, so it wasn't a band that was that, that didn't have any. Far from it. The, the rapper and lead singer of Faithless is, is a Nichiren Daishonin everyday chanting Buddhist called Maxi Jazz, and he's very, very deep into his faith, and all the lyrics of that band are deeply about faith. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my faith, I believe, that, as I said, on planet Earth, we're all in duality, we're all in two places, we're all living a life where we are going backwards and forwards between the part of us that has total faith and the part of us that doubts, and, and we're all we're an individual that thinks we're going to die and that's going to be it. And we're also totally wise. I, I sometimes say that, that we are each of us all a wise guru in charge of a mental patient. <laughs> that's the closest description to my life I can come up with all of us really. Um, and the mental patient is constantly doubting, constantly going me, 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 ouch, ouch, ouch. Um, while the wise one is, is sitting behind it all, um, knowing that it's okay in its faith. The faith never goes away. And so the greatest skill, the greatest muscle or the greatest thing that we can all learn to do to be able to navigate that and, and have more chance of drinking our faith is the ability to pause, I feel. The ability to pause for a moment is the skill which allows us to connect to our faith. 
and not be in the knee-jerk terror, the knee-jerk reaction, the knee-jerk victim, the knee-jerk push someone away, blame them. It's all very instant. It's an instant volcano. If you upset me or you make me jealous or you treat me unjustly or whatever, I feel this instant contraction or this instant volcano in me and I immediately act. And we're living in the age of email now, which is terrible for that um, because, you know, the amount of bridges that I've burnt with my overreactive diva behavior and it's too late by the time I've pressed send. But, you know, in the old days you had to write it and then you had to lick the envelope and post it. And by the time you'd done that, I would have screened out half of the stupid things I'd written. But we're living in the age of the knee-jerk reaction now. Um, And I think that the greatest skill we can all develop in order to be intimate with the world and see what's really going on and intimate with myself when something happens, to to pause for a moment and put my hand on my chest and go, okay, okay, Jamie, that's a big reaction. What do you need right now? What do you want right now? How often do we ask ourselves the question in any given moment, what do I want right now? That's intimacy to me, is to pause for a moment, put my hand on my chest and ask myself, what do I want? What do I need? And when we do that, the part of us that's faithful, the part of us that knows and that nurtures ourselves and that is a bit more in equanimity comes to the front. It's only when we're in the knee-jerk, instant, instant, bing, bang, bong, reactive pinball reality that we get stuck into the reactive faithless and, and, and the way to stay within the faith for me is to develop the ability to slow down, even to pause. Now, there's a great photo of you, Jamie, on your website. I really like it. You're, you're not wearing a shirt, but that's <laughs> well, yeah, part, you know, part of what I like now. But uh, there are these words that you have taped, it looks like, or yeah. it, looks, it looks almost like they're tattooed on your body. Words like bitch and selfish and then there's a big word on your forehead taped on called fake, Jamie Cato fake. It's, yeah. it's a great photo. And I wonder, talk a little bit about the inspiration behind putting these words, bitch, selfish, etc., on your body and the word fake on your forehead. We're all everything. We're all a bitch. We're all fake. We're all manipulative. We're all a bully. We all have everything in us. Like Gabrielle Roth used to say, why get up every every day and try and proclaim that you're not? Yeah, one day I'm a bitch, one day I'm a bully. We all have the potential to be everything. And this constant, I must only be the light, not the darkness, I must only be the nice bits, is totally unauthentic. And it's only when I'm denying that I'm all those things, then those parts of me keep leaking out in unexpected ways. And that's what we do a lot on the workshop is to play with those parts of ourselves under controlled circumstances in harmless ways so that they can get some oxygen and they don't need to leap out in self-sabotaging ways because we have all of those things. You only need to Google the Stanford experiment to see that all the dark sides of our nature, they don't take a lot of encouragement to start coming out. You know, they had a thing in this country recently where they had to stop the gasoline, the petrol and the petrol station for a couple of days. Fights were breaking out in two seconds flat. You know, we're we're terribly civilized until people take us out of our comfort zone. And then we totally turn into incredibly manipulative. I mean, another thing we say on the workshop, for example, is never treat and never pretend to anybody that you like them more than you do in order to get their money or their resources. But that's not what happens at Harvard Business School. You can do a DVD box set to show you how to perfectly not be yourself to get that job. You know, we're incredibly manipulative and fake, but in the world of business, it's considered to be, you know, okay. 
we all have all these dark sides and light sides, all these sides to us. And for me to be a great creator, to be a whole person, to be a juicy lover, to be a radically fun parent, to be all the things I want to be, I have to include my wholeness. I have to include all the dark and the light. And we play games on the workshop where everybody finds out what they judge most in the world and it becomes a sticker that they wear. <laughs> and then they have full permission over the workshop to be the 110% version of everything that they usually condemn in the world. And give themselves permission. Because if you don't give yourself permission for the things you condemn, you become them in unexpected um, insidious ways that can sabotage your life but if you do give them permission in fun ways they don't need to leap out and destroy and be destructive uh, in your life so it's great fun for us to, to muck around with with those stickers with with those th things that we usually condemn and give them a little bit more permission and lighten up around always having to be good um one thing i noticed in this the sort of mayan calendar in 2012 and all that stuff was there a shift one thing I've noticed that has actually really shifted um, was that before, in recent years, we were all in feeling we were terribly spiritual on a journey towards the light, away from the darkness. We were all light beings, light warriors. And actually, I think that's entirely unauthentic. I think the spiritual journey or the path of awareness now is much more fun and much more juicy. And it's not a journey away from the darkness towards the light. It's on a journey towards darkness and light, including it all. And that's why I'm so incredibly turned on by uh, artists like Pema Chodron, who I think has totally nailed it. And I would follow her to the ends of the, the earth. I, I always have a Pema Chodron book near me. I, don't, I wouldn't go anywhere without one. I think she's totally got it. And I love her. And I'd like to say that out loud on your show. Okay. Oh, you just did. It's wonderful. Now, in your workshop, Transforming Shadows into Rocket Fuel, how do we actually take these things, whether it's what we judge outside of ourselves and, you know, I'm going around, I, I hate people who are greedy. They're so greedy. They're so greedy. Okay, now I have a big greedy sticker on my forehead. But how do I actually turn this shadow material into quote unquote rocket fuel? Okay, well, there's a few ways and I don't want to sort of ruin everything. But, you know, if you're wearing the sticker of greedy, I would say that you could be more greedy. Uh, you, you, you're so down on greediness that maybe you're being a bit too frugal in actually taking what you want for you. Um, and so there's a grain of greediness that maybe you need more in your life. So the first thing I would ask someone with the greedy sticker is to reflect, are you taking too little for fear of being greedy so you're not actually getting your share? Um, that's usually what people who are down on greedy people are doing is they're taking less than they deserve just in case they could ever possibly be called greedy. They're so terrified of ever possibly being called greedy that they wouldn't even, they would take less than they need. Um, and so they could maybe do with a little grain more self selfness, um, in there. Um, also the greedy character in us, I like to interview them. I like to do interviews where you ask questions by writing, um, you put the pen in your usual writing hand and you ask the character who's the self-destructive, greedy character, well, you know, what is your message? What do you have for me here? What, what, how, what is your point here? And then you ask some questions like, what do you need? And then you put, having written that question, what do you need? You transfer the pen into your unusual writing hand and you empty and empty and listen and listen. And you hear an answer from that character and you transcribe it in your wonky wrong handwriting. And this conversation, this dialogue starts happening. And the million dollar question, once you get into dialogue with one of these dark characters is, okay, in the past, you, I've looked at you as a self-destructive energy. 
What new job with your skills, what new job could you now do that isn't self-destructive that would be in harmony with my life now? And suddenly that greedy character who used to be destructive is now like, well, I could make sure you've got enough at least. And you go, okay, you're now officer in charge of enoughness. So what used to be a negative dragging you back demon has now become your officer in charge of me having enough. Uh, And now you've got a new ally. We've transformed a demon into an employee. So I always ask those negative things. What could be your new job in the evil empire? Mm -hmm. You turn these parts into employees. That's an interesting phrase. Can you explain that a little more? Just asking them, what could you now do instead? In the past, you've been sabotaging my life, but I don't want you to do that anymore. A lot of these self-destructive behaviors we once created as a benefit. We just didn't realize it. Let me give you an example. Uh, The youngest of six siblings, when he was young, uh, and he was the youngest of six siblings, when he was at the dinner table, he needed to elbow other people out the way to get food on his plate. He needed to grab and snatch and interrupt people and shout and be this loud kind of dominating character because he was the smallest of six. That was how he, he had to create that character to survive. Now that he's 36 years old, it's not working for him anymore. But these characters that we have that are sabotaging our lives, what we forget is that we once invented them earlier on at a time when we really needed them. Uh, we just never told them to stop. So if you think, or any of your listeners now, you want to think about one of your characters, one of your behaviors, one of your repetitive dysfunctional behaviors that you wish you didn't do, if you reflect for a minute and ask yourself the question, okay, I wish I didn't behave like that now, but at what point in my life earlier on, maybe in my childhood or back, at what point of my life was there something going on that was so overwhelming that I needed to create this character to be like this? I guarantee you, you once created this character that may now be self-destructive, but back then was essential to you, was an essential support um, to protect you. And we just never told that character to stop. So I'm a big believer every one of our dysfunctional behaviors was once a benefit that never got told to stop. So that character is now here for life. It's never going away. It needs to be given a good job because it's going to be doing something. So let's get it doing something that's in harmony with our life now. Jamie, I want to end our conversation on the note of the creativity manifesto that you've written. I mean, it's a, it's a strong word manifesto, and I'm going to read a couple paragraphs of it, not the whole thing. But after I read this, maybe you can comment on it. How does that sound? Sure. Okay, here we go. So this is from Jamie Cato's Creativity Manifesto. We need to collectively admit that we're not fine. We're not confident and balanced and good. We turn up to work every day pretending we're not neurotic and obsessed and insatiable and full of doubt. And we waste so much energy keeping up this mutual pretense for each other because we think if people saw the truth, if people really knew what was going on in our heads, all the crazy truth of our dark appetites and self-loathing, then we'd get rejected. But in fact, the opposite is true. It's when we dare to reveal the truth that we unwittingly give everyone else permission to do the same, to stop holding their breath for a moment and actually come into the room be here, present, vulnerable, and authentic. We're on a mission to make self-reflection hip for just a moment, just long enough to save us. If we can all collectively acknowledge our insanity, shrug and roll our eyes at each other, at how nuts it is being a human, let alone having to pretend every day that we're normal, the amount of energy we'll inherit that's been wasted on the mask 
will be enough to creatively solve any global crisis. I'm in. I love hearing you say it. Taking off the mask, the mask that has been siphoning off our energy, and then we'll have enough energy to creatively solve any global crisis. Was there something specific happening when you wrote the manifesto? Yeah, we were. I was making one giant leap, and I know, and I and I had to, we had to present some of it to the backers, the people that had paid for it, and they were a very posh, groomed bunch of people, um, very very top entertainment executive type group of people, and um, I sat in the room, and I had no, as usual, I had no speech planned. I usually just turn up and empty and and see what comes out. I, I learned that from Ramdas. Um, and I looked at all these groomed people and I looked at them and I thought, wow, look at you all. You all have to turn up to work every day and you have to be a winner and you have to be on top of things. No matter whether your kid's just been expelled from school or your wife has just had an affair, you can't show that at work. You've got to be a winner. You've got to be confident. You've got to inspire confidence. And you have to basically suppress and hide all the drama and all the terrible weaknesses and, and all the, the terrors. Um, that must be exhausting. Um, isn't it extraordinary how we exhaust ourselves wearing masks for people that will only hang out with us if we wear a mask? Those are the very people I don't want to hang out with. So I'm exhausting myself wearing masks for people that I don't want to hang out with. How about taking the mask off and seeing who stays? And yes, some people will leave, but the people who stays really love you. They really get you and nourish you, and those are the people you want to be around. Um, and that was really how I, how I began my speech. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't totally look comfortable. Uh, but then they played the Katie Lang song, Wounded in All the Right Places, and everyone relaxed. Um, I'm a big believer that um, we are exhausting ourselves wearing masks. We're so terrified that if we showed the real us, um, that everyone would run away. But the truth is, is that when we actually are intimate with each other and be a bit more visible, in the things we think are unlovable about ourselves, I might think, ah, oh, this is unlovable about me, so I hide it forever. But then when I sit with you and I let you see a bit of it, you might go, oh, I can love that. The best way to love yourself is to let everyone else see a little bit of what you think is unlovable about you and let them love it. Let them lead you to loving that about yourself. Beautiful. Jamie, to end our Insights at the Edge episode, let's hear one more song from Internal. Music for Dissolving. What do you suggest? Well, I'd love for you to play this one, Let It Go, because we do a meditation on the workshop where, as I say to all activists, everything you want to heal out in the world, everything you want to fight out into the world is a 3D representation of something unfinished and unhealed inside yourself. Um, so if everybody on the uh, Occupy Wall Street um, activism thing asked themselves the question, how is my own corruption and greed doing, then that, that could have had wings. But because no one asked themselves that question, it, it didn't really go. Everything you want to fight out in the world has a mutual relationship of an unfinished or unhealed part in yourself. Whatever you're an activist about, whatever you're fighting or healing out in the world, what does that match in you? What is that part 
that it represents in you. And then when you start getting into the relationship between the external and the internal, that the thing you're healing out in the world, the thing you're fighting out in the world is also something within you yourself that you're working on and that you're processing. When you get the relationship between the external thing you're looking at and the bit in you back and forth, back and forth, it becomes this mutually healing, mending, illuminating relationship. And the track that is about that to, to feel grateful for everything out in the world that I'm struggling with that leads me back to myself, always a mirror, always leading me back to myself. The track on the album that we wrote for that is called Let It Go. Insights at the Edge interview, and I always love to know in these conversations what people's current edge is. And what I mean by that is what you're really working on, we could say Mm -hmm. internally, but what you're really working on in your life. Your mask is off. Here's the edge. My present challenge is to stay steadfast giving all my gifts freely, open-handedly, generously, generously, and not be so swayed by the external signal, the many, many different mixed external signals I get about what people think of me or whether I'm doing it right, not to be so reliant on the external mirror for how I feel about myself, not to be so dependent on the nipple of the external feedback 
for feeling good about myself, to be steadfast and trusting and loving myself, knowing that I am the one that has to parent myself, not keep handing the little child over to someone else to love. That's my edge, is to be rooted in loving myself and trusting myself without always being dependent on the external for the feedback that makes me feel good about myself. Beautiful. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jamie Cato, Jamie Cato, along with Duncan Bridgman. They're the two creative catalysts behind One Giant Leap. And Jamie Cato has teamed up with Alex Forster to release a new record through Sounds True called Internal Music for Dissolving. Jamie, it's great to talk to you, to learn about the workshops that you're doing and the writing. And it's just beautiful, beautiful to be in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's always lovely to connect, Tammy. Thanks for having me. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>